For several weeks, Dr. Long has been sharing with us the story or the history of the Wright brothers. Now, these men weren't just aviation pioneers. They were men of faith. Their father was a bishop in the Evangelical United Brethren Church, which was the organization that merged with the Methodist Church in 1968 to form the United Methodist Church. After their successful flights in 1903, Orville and Wilbur knew that they had to keep developing and perfecting their planes. They also understood that they needed to develop their business to be able to continue to support the work and their endeavors. And so they decided to divide and conquer. They would focus on developing business interests in France as well as the United States. Wilbur would go to France and develop the interests and connections there, while Orville went to Washington, and he was planning on demonstration flights that would help kind of spur and ignite interest in that area. Well, when Wilbur went to France, he was surprised by the crowds of people that came out to see him. He was working in the fields, preparing his plane, preparing the runway, and day after day, crowds of people and reporters came out to see him. They were pressing upon him. They were excited to see something, and they kept asking him over and over when he was going to fly. Well, Wilbur was rather quiet, and he could not let himself get caught up in all of their comments. He had to stay focused on the job at hand. Well, pretty soon their comments turned to complaints. The crowds, the reporters began to grow impatient, and they started to doubt the Wright brothers, whether they had ever flown or would ever fly. One of the group was a kind of an authority in the area. He had founded the Aero Club of France, and he himself was a pioneer in the field of balloon aviation. He had sponsored a contest there in France for anyone who would be the first to fly in France. His name was Ernest Archdeacon, and he started speaking out against the Wright brothers, specifically to the papers. He convinced them that the Wright brothers were just bluffing, So much so that an editorial came out that said, either the Wright brothers have flown or they haven't. They're either flyers or liars. It's very difficult to fly, but it's easy to say you have flown. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be, knowing what you've accomplished and yet having to stay at the task at hand, focused and committed despite everything that's going on around you, people accusing you of lying, people complaining and and yelling at you, but he stayed true to himself. In the midst of it, he understood what his brother might be facing, and so he wrote his brother a letter helping him to stay true to the cause. He wrote, I advise you to wait till it's calm, till you are sure of yourself. Don't go out even for all the officers of the government unless you would go equally if they were absent. Do not be forced into doing anything before you are ready. Do not let people talk to you all day and all night. It will wear you out before you are ready for real business. Of course, there did come the time where Wilbur would fly in France several times, and now the same crowd of people, 
the same reporters who had been criticizing him, who had been calling him a fraud, now were celebrating him. And not just celebrating him, they were adoring him. They were lavishing presents upon him. They were writing songs in his honor. And they were hosting parties for his benefit. It would have been easy for him to get caught up in that, to, at the very least, enjoy some of the fruit of his labor, to have a moment where he relished, I told you so. And yet, just like the criticism, he couldn't let all of the praise distract him from the work at hand. He had to be committed and know who he was to go on and create the future. This morning, we are concluding the sermon series, Inventing the Future. For several weeks now, we have been discussing ways to plan and dream of a meaningful future. Now, I have loved this series, and I have to admit, I've really loved talking about the Wright brothers each week. I was born in Dayton, Ohio, many, many years after the Wright brothers, but growing up in that area... You're surrounded by their influence. One of the field trips that every child in that area would take would be to the National Air Force Museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. Now, it's an incredible place. It has memorabilia from the Wright brothers to through the whole history of flight. Now, it's at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's named for the Wright brothers and for Frank Patterson. Frank Patterson was the nephew of John Patterson, who founded National Cash Register Corporation, or NCR, and Frank Patterson was a pilot. He was flying and testing a plane in 1918, in June of that year, when his plane crashed due to the wings collapsing, and tragically, he lost his life. What is amazing to me is that he was testing the synchronization of machine gun firing through a spinning propeller. That was occurring just 15 years after the very first flight. Incredible things were progressing and happening. Well, I was a young girl growing up in that area, and so naturally I went to the National Air Force Museum several times. But I also went to kind of its counterpart, just less than an hour away, the Armstrong Air and Space Museum in Wapakoneta, Ohio. It was built in honor of astronaut Neil Armstrong, but when it was built in the 70s, it wasn't just for him. As the governor of Ohio at the time, uh, Governor James Rhodes, said at the commissioning of this new museum, he said, this place is for all Ohioans who have dared to defy gravity. When we have been talking about inventing the future, there's a sense that we're defying gravity, that we're breaking away from the bonds that would keep us held back, that we're breaking free from the things that keep us weighted down. And one of the things that will weigh us down quickly is if we forget who we are. You know, in this world, we can become so busy, so, get caught, so caught up in all the things of doing that we forget about being. The world will judge us on our accomplishments or our failures, but those are just fleeting things in our lives. 
The things that we do or don't do don't make us who we are. We are the children of God, and that is defined by God. In today's scripture passage, it's the story of Stephen as found in the book of Acts. Now, the story actually begins in the very first verse of that chapter, and it talks about a growing problem that's occurring in the early church. The church is facing some problems because of the rapid growth, and a division is occurring between two factions in the church, between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now, they were all Jewish. If you remember, the early church was was Jewish. Jesus was a Jew, and his followers were Jewish. The disciples, by and large, preached initially to the Jewish population. And so this very early church was one Jewish congregation. And yet, even within that, there were different groups who felt some disparity in how they were being treated. Now, there are different views on who the Hellenists were. Some have thought that the Hellenists were a group of Jewish people who were speaking Greek language and more closely associated to the social context than that of the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Some have also thought that the Hellenists were the descendants of the Jews who were uh, sent away in the diaspora. They were scattered all over the ancient world. And now that they had returned to Jerusalem, they returned with some of the practices and the traditions of the lands where they had been living. And so that caused a division. Either way, Between these two groups of people, the Hellenists felt that their widows were not being treated as well as those of the other group. Now, one of the first missions of the early church was the care of the widows. In that day and age, women traditionally did not work, and so they relied upon their husbands to provide for them. If your husband passed away, it would be the responsibility of the son to take over care of his mother. So if a woman died, or if a woman's husband died and she had no other family, she had no one to provide for her, no food or housing or protection. And so right from the beginning, the early church recognized that it was the family to care for the widows. It was the family of faith. And in caring for these widows, somehow, whether real or perceived, the Hellenists thought that their widows weren't getting the same kind of treatment. And so the leaders of the church said that it's not right for us to stop preaching the word of God to take care of the widows. And so they selected seven men from among the leaders to take care and provide for those kind of administrative needs of the church, one of whom was Stephen. It was said that he led with grace and power And however he carried out his responsibilities, he did it in a profound way. And I think it's absolutely tied to his realization that he was a child of God. That's how he served. I think there are three things that we can look at this morning that can help us invent a future where we live out of our identity as children of God. First, we need to remember who we are. When the disciples selected Stephen, I have to imagine that it didn't feel super warm and fuzzy. The scripture says that they spoke these words, and I love this phrase. It says, it's not right for us to quit preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
And then they turned right around and chose men who it was fine for them to serve. Imagine if you're Stephen, and there's kind of this ranking of responsibility, the evangelism and then the serving. And that's what he's given. Maybe he wanted to be out preaching the word of God. Maybe he wanted to be on the front lines of this new church that's growing, and and he wanted to reach out to people. We don't know, but he could have felt a, a little kind of less than in that moment. We don't know if he was excited or disappointed, but what we do know is that whatever he felt, he served in such a way as to make a difference. He did not let the task define him but rather he defined the task by the way that he served. He cared for them. He uh, served them and and took care of their needs like a child of God and treated them as children of God. He was so powerful in the way that he served that it it was said that wonders and signs were performed. Almost miraculous things were happening because of the way Stephen was serving When we invent our future, we need to remember who we are. A lot of times when we plan things for the future, we think about all the things that we're going to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with having a bucket list of things you want to do or see or places you want to travel to. But we we shouldn't get so caught up in doing that we forget to ask the question, who do we want to be in the future? No matter what we do, we need to live as the children of God, and nothing can take that away from us. Not circumstances, not success, not failure, not the opinions of others. We continue to live out our identity and our relationship to Christ. Now, growing up in Ohio, NCR, or National Catch Register Corporation, was a big deal in Dayton at the time. My grandfather worked there and retired from there. I went to some of their company picnics. It was an incredible uh, corporation with a rich history. It was founded by John Patterson. Now, he was an individual that had kind of a hit-and-miss reputation as a boss, As a civic leader, he was wonderful, and he encouraged Dayton to really progressive adventures. For his factory workers, he was incredibly compassionate, making sure all of them had a hot meal every day. But to his other executives at NCR, it was was not so much. One of the men that he hired was Charles Kettering. Kettering was an inventor, and he was a genius, and he invented a small electric motor to use with the cash register to really uh, set it light years ahead at that time. Because of that, and because they were all contemporaries of the Wright brothers, Kettering was introduced to Orville and Wilbur, and he suggested they use his electric ignition for their plane motor. Now, Eventually, Orville and Wilbur kind of went a different direction, but Kettering stayed uh, closely tied to all of those developments. He continued to invent things, and John Patterson, over the years, would fire and rehire Charles Kettering several times. Um, He expected his executives to be able to ride horse, a horse well, and if that didn't happen, uh, you could be fired. Uh, He was known to take all the contents 
out of a person's office, their desk and chair, and set it out on the front lawn and set it ablaze so that when you arrive to work, you could get the message. Well, after several times of this, Charles Kettering knew that he needed to be out on his own if he was going to continue what he felt called to do, to invent things that made a difference in the world. And so he and another executive from NCR left, and they formed Dayton Engineering Laboratories Company, or Delco. And they started the electric ignitions and self-starters for automobiles. He wanted to be free to be the person he was created to be and invent things that made a difference, not just through the inventions, but also through the profits. Charles Kettering started Sloan Kettering Research Institute because he wanted a state-of-the-art facility in the fight against cancer. He was committed to making a difference. When we think about our future, what are the things that we are passionate about? And how will we create things and opportunities where we can live out of our identity as children of God? How will we make a difference? Second, we should also remember the people and the values that have helped to shape us and shape our identity. For Stephen, it said that the way that he served, he was full of grace and power. And he, he did miraculous signs and wonders, so much so that he was a threat to the local authorities, and they brought him in. They lodged charges against him and brought in false witnesses. And through it all, Stephen continued to speak with wisdom and power. At the very end, when he must have realized that his life was in jeopardy, he still radiated God's love. It says that for all who looked at him, he had the face of an angel. And I have to imagine that was because he was able to maintain his composure. He didn't give in to fear. And he absolutely lived out of a sense of the love of God, so much so that everyone could see we can have that same grace in our own lives when we stay true to our identity and live out the values of grace and respect and gratitude. None of us arrive at where we are by ourselves. We all owe so much to others. In Ohio, it has a rich aviation heritage. The first men in flight were Orville and Wilbur Wright from Dayton, The first man in orbit was John Glenn from Cambridge, Ohio. And the first man on the moon was Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong grew up on a small farm just outside of Wapakoneta, Ohio, less than an hour from where the Wright brothers had grown up. And he had to be influenced by that kind of atmosphere. He grew up loving airplanes, fascinated by them. So much so that when he was a teenager, he took on odd jobs to pay for flight lessons. And he received his pilot's license on his 16th birthday. He received his pilot's license before his driver's license. That's how committed he was. Well, just a few years ago, he was invited to speak at the 100th anniversary of the death of Wilbur Wright. 
And when he got up to speak, he uh, reminded everybody of what happened in Dayton, Ohio on that day. He said that at three o'clock, there was a mandatory three minutes of silence. Everything shut down. The cars, the bicycles, the trolleys all stopped. Businesses paused in what they were doing. The telephone switchboard even grew silent. He said that was all to honor the, the man and uh, his brother who had done so much to influence their lives. It was out of that same spirit of respect and gratitude that Neil Armstrong would live. When he was the commander of the Apollo 11 mission, he was allowed to take personal mementos to the moon and back. All of the crew were given a personal preference kit, a PPK, which was a small pouch that they could carry on items that maybe had a personal significance for them or their family that would go to the moon and back. Well, in his pouch, he had several Apollo 11 medallions. He had some jewelry for his wife and his mother. But the thing he was most proud of was an arrangement he had made with the National Air Force Museum to obtain some of the Muslim fabric from the upper left wing of the 1903 Wright Flyer, as well as some wood from its propeller, and he took that to the moon and returned it. He did that in honor of the men who had started it all. For him, he realized that his journey to the moon was his culmination of all of his hard work, his dreams, all of his effort, but he also knew that None of it would have been possible without all of the people that had gone before. And so he wanted to live with that sense of gratitude. When we look to the future, how are we living that we live the attitude of grace and gratitude and respect for all of those who have gone before and all of those who are yet to come, how do we make those values a part of our everyday life in the way that we serve? And third, we're also called to help others discover their identity. As we go forth today to invent the future, it's important to remember that we are called, just like Stephen, we are called to serve We are called to help people hear the love of God, to hear that they are the children of God. One of the greatest joys that we will ever experience now and throughout our future is to help people understand the love that God has for them. Many of you may be familiar with the name Dr. William House. He was a dentist and medical doctor, an ear specialist, a researcher and inventor, He did incredible things. He passed away just a few years ago and was recognized as the one who developed the cochlear implant. Now, he was someone that throughout the entirety of his medical career, he faced opposition from many of his colleagues. At the very beginning, he was able to obtain a surgical microscope from Germany And he was wanting to use it in examination and research of the human ear. But many of his colleagues said, what a waste. Any good surgeon that's worth his salt will do just fine with good eyesight. Well, that same microscope would help him discover new things that 
would be groundbreaking in, in treatment of ear diseases and hearing loss. One of the things that he developed was a treatment program for Meniere's disease. Meniere's disease is a disorder of the inner ear that causes extreme vertigo and nausea and ringing in the ears and sometimes hearing loss. And at that time, there were many doctors who felt that it was a psychosomatic disorder. In other words, it was just all in the patient's head. And many patients were sent home just to deal with it. Well, Dr. House developed a technique of relieving pressure in the inner ear. One of his most famous patients was Alan Shepard, the astronaut. Alan Shepard was the first American in space. And do you know where he was from? New Hampshire. It was, <laughs> I would love to tell you that he was from Ohio, but he was from New Hampshire. And he was the first American in space in 1961. He was scheduled to be a part of the Gemini program, but in 64, he developed Meniere's disease. He went to Dr. House for treatment, and he was relieved of all of his symptoms and re-enlisted back in the program, and it enabled him to be the commander of the Apollo 14 mission to the moon. He attributes his trip to the moon because of the work of Dr. House. Well, probably the most extraordinary accomplishment of Dr. House was his development of the cochlear implant. He started work in the early 1960s, and again, his colleagues were critical of what he was doing. They said that that kind of implant would only damage the ear further. And worse than that, he was preying on the desperation of parents who would do anything to help their children. But Dr. House knew what he was called to do, and he remained committed. He didn't let all the criticism or all of the, the names that he was called stop him from what he was destined to do, and he continued his research but it wouldn't be till the late 1970s that cochlear implants were largely accepted. And that was because of a research project that was done by the University of Pittsburgh. And when they presented their research, they said that it is obvious now that cochlear implants will be the standard of the future. And that the work of Dr. House is like the Wright brothers' stage of aircraft development. He was an incredible man. Now, when he was working on the, you know, the cochlear implant, obviously now we have far more sophisticated uh, implants, but without his work, we would be decades behind. Through it all, he never obtained a patent on the cochlear implant. Now, obviously, financially, he would have been much better off had he done so, but his commitment was for research, and he knew that if there wasn't a, a patent on the device, that people would be able to obtain it easier and research it to perfect it, and that was his goal. He said that his dream for his life was that every child who was deaf would receive the gift of hearing. When I was reading about Dr. House, I couldn't help but see that as he was inventing the future, he wanted all people to hear. As the family of faith, when we invent the future, we want everyone to hear the message of God's love. We have an incredible future in front of us. 
when we remember that we are the children of God and we are called to share God's love and bring hope to the world. And the best way to predict the future is to invent it. It's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.